0: Our Bible readings in Deuteronomy, there's two passages, Deuteronomy 16. Scott the man in the audiovisual said he had the greatest job in the world. Reading God's word in public is an incredible privilege too. So we're reading Deuteronomy chapter 16, reading verse 18 to 20. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God has given you. The second passage is in chapter 24 reading from 19 to the end of the chapter. When you are harvesting in your fields and you overlook a sheath, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, Do not go over the vines again leave the remains for the foreigner the fatherless and the widow remember that you were slaves in egypt that is why i command you to do this
1: thanks for that reading peter uh and good evening everyone it's great to be here with you if you haven't met me yet my name's ken one of the pastors here at wollongong baptist church and i wasn't supposed to be up here Preaching. Uh, Mark was on this week, but he had to go to Catherine's grandmother's funeral down in Albury. Uh, so I'm preaching on the passage that he, the passages that he was going to look at. Um, and as has been introduced, we've been looking at Deuteronomy now for quite a number of weeks, looking at this series called "Choose Life." This section that we've focused on for the last two weeks, and then now tonight chapters 12 to 25 look at the laws as they're lived out in practical everyday living. What does it look like to actually implement what God has told us to do? And so we're looking at another one of these themes that will help us then to read other parts of Deuteronomy and live it out in our lives. So I'd invite you to pray with me as we come to his word. Let's do that now. Lord God, we do thank you so much for the privilege we've got of uh, being here together tonight with others who know you and love you and want to understand how to live out the word that you have given to us. And so as we take this time to think about this section of Deuteronomy and this theme of looking after the poor, the disadvantaged, uh, we pray that by your spirit, you would enable us to understand what you are saying to your people in the time of Moses, what you are saying to us now and that by your Spirit, you'd actually enable us to live it out to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you know that uh, my family and I lived in Thailand for a number of years, and when we first arrived, Christy and I very quickly learnt a couple of terms that we never really became completely comfortable with. The first one, farang, basically means white foreigner. The frequent use of this term to describe us as we were coming down the street made it unmistakable that we were considered to be different. It was true, but it didn't feel particularly nice to have it pointed out all the time. Now the second, even more confronting term, Kon tang Dao, literally means a person from a different star. It's the Thai equivalent of our English word alien. Each time we went to immigration, which was at least five times a year, we had to line up in the queue for aliens. Now, person from overseas is one of the meanings of the word, but it always made me think that I was getting put in the category of E.T., Alf, and Marvin the Martian. What is this strange person doing in our country? To be an alien meant that I had to do things that the locals didn't have to, like filling in forms, paying a visa fee each year. But where the differences between locals and aliens really rubbed was when we visited the local tourist attractions. One day, Christy and I rode our motorbike out to one of the local waterfalls, and we were told that as Farang, we needed to pay 200 baht each. Now, $8 wasn't particularly expensive and we could have afforded to pay that, but the locals only had to pay $0.80, and so this felt very unjust to us. Why are you treating us so differently? Now, somewhat ironically, one of the things that unites chapters 12 to 25 is this concept, this focus on being different. The repeated emphasis in these chapters is that God demands his people to be different from the peoples that lived around the Promised Land. Two weeks ago, we saw that Israel must choose a different type of king. The nations would pick a wealthy, powerful, politically savvy king. But Israel had to pick a king whose sole goal was to lead the people in trusting God. Last week we saw that God's people must seek guidance in a different way to those who lived around them. The nations who lived in the Promised Land sought guidance about the future from spirits, and they sought to manipulate outcomes through magic or sacrifice. But God's people were to be different. They must listen and obey God's word given to them through God's messenger. Now this week, there's yet another expectation for God's people to be different. They must be different by treating the disadvantaged well. The nations, whether intentionally or not, have a natural inclination to take advantage of the poor. But Israel has to act differently to this. And so today, we're gonna think about how does God expect us to treat people in need? The first expectation is pursue justice for all. How does God expect us to treat people in need? Pursue justice for everyone. Now justice is a term that's become increasingly popular in our society, in the media right now. Often it's expressed in slogans like Black Lives Matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights. There are a range of expressions that pledge allegiance to the oppressed and marginalised. Sadly, I think much of this advocating is limited merely to positive posts on social media, lots of thumbs up, but it is leading some people to put their money where their mouth is. Where coffee beans are grown or where clothes are manufactured can now make the difference between people purchasing or not touching that brand. And in many ways, this has been a helpful corrective to centuries of racism, sexism, and other forms of exploitation. Movies like Just Mercy, Armistad, Erin Brockovich, and even our very own The Castle reveal structural problems in our society that disadvantage the little guy. And we love it when the little guy wins. When wrongs are righted, the world feels like it's a better place. But long before movies... All the media caught on to this desire for justice. Deuteronomy insisted on it. Have a look again at chapter 16, verses 18 to 19. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. While they were wandering in the wilderness for the 40 years, Moses was the one who would pass on directly God's judgments. He put in place other leaders who shared some of this responsibility. But as Israel went into the promised land, a judicial system was to be set up that would ensure that when people did the wrong thing, justice would prevail. Righteous judgment, verse 18 is clarified in verse 19 with reference to all three parties who are connected to a dispute. Firstly, there's the wronged person. Then there's the one who has done the wrong. And then finally, the one who's trying to sort it all out. Firstly, Israel must not pervert, or probably better, deny justice. They mustn't deny justice. That is, don't allow people to be wronged and just ignore it. It is right and appropriate to start here, because more often than not, the victim is the weaker party. As we see in the conflicts that take place today, far too often, might is right. And so centuries before it became popular, the demand of justice for all is made right here in Deuteronomy. I think for far too long, we have disobeyed God's command by ignoring exploited factory workers, not caring for countries with inadequate medical supplies, disregarding injustices like what is taking place in Myanmar right at this moment. Turning a blind eye is not an option for the people of God. But notice also that going through the motions of pursuing justice is not acceptable to God either. We all know from famous examples in the media that if the wrongdoer is powerful and wealthy, well, they can pay for a better legal team. And even if there is a court case, well, they get off anyway. But partiality, showing favour to someone is forbidden. As in the famous statue, justice is supposed to be blind, deciding cases on their merit, not based upon who the, who's involved in the case. And finally, the judge is not motivated by self-interest. All of this is about re-establishing right relationships and the judge is not there to get something for himself. He's designed to make sure that society gets fixed up. So they won't accept a bribe because justice is their sole goal. It's almost idyllic, isn't it? Yes, bad things do happen, but justice is done quickly, completely, and without any bias. Books, movies, and social media have all tapped into this desire that runs deep within each one of us. But what we may not have realised is that our desire for justice resonates with God's requirement of us. And so the desire to pursue justice is to be encouraged and channelled in the right directions. It is a godly response to be involved in such causes. And so we'll come back to thinking about what that looks like for us. But we move on to the second way. Firstly, Israel must look after the disadvantaged by pursuing justice for all. The second way that Israel was to look after the disadvantaged was to be intentionally inefficient. Sounds very strange, doesn't it? I, I think this point is much harder for us to hear. Because unlike pursuing justice, being intentionally inefficient goes against our instincts, or at least what we've learned is important in our Western society. In our society, maximising efficiency is an unquestionable goal. Getting the most outcome from the least input is what business, education, health, sport, and many, many other things are all striving for. Why would anyone, knowingly do something to sabotage their potential yield? Can you imagine a a Formula One team doing hours and hours of research, putting all the sensors on the car and then sticking a parachute on the back? What about an Olympian running in some army boots? It goes without saying that if you are putting in the effort, you want the best return on investment that you can possibly get from your hard work. Why would anyone knowingly choose to get less than they could. Well, remember that the Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness and their primary occupation for those 40 years, 400 years before that in Egypt, the years before that was looking after sheep and goats. They were herders. But as they settle down in one place and grow crops as well as herding, they are told from the outset to do it in such a way that they reap for themselves less than they could. Chapter 24, verse 19. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Three times the same message is given. When you harvest your grain, verse 19 when you beat the olives from your tree, verse 20, when you pick your grapes, verse 21, be satisfied with what you get the first time round. Don't go back for a round two. Last year, my family had the opportunity to go blueberry picking. And after a bumper year, the trees were absolutely packed with fruit that looked just like this. It was very, very nice. I didn't realize how big blueberry trees actually grow. But there is the ripe fruit that's at just the right height that makes it easy to pick. And many of the blueberries at that high made it into mouths rather than into buckets to take home. But some fruit was just too high and we didn't have a ladder with us. Some fruit was like this, not quite ripe yet. And some was right up the back of the tree and it was too hard to get. We were only picking for pleasure. But normal farming practice would be to get absolutely the maximum amount of fruit that you can from your tree. Anything that's left behind is wasted effort. But God instructs Israel to be satisfied with what they get in round one. Leave the rest for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. The poor can collect it and live. Now, if you were a farmer, how quick would you have been to obey this command? Why should I work so hard, getting up before the sun rises, work so hard for somebody else's benefit? Well, according to God, because this is the way that his blessings will flow to everyone. At its heart, intentional inefficiency is a God-given way to recognise his blessing. Israel must learn that what they produce is not solely down to their efforts and skills and cleverness. When there is a good harvest, it is primarily because God has enabled it. Because He's the provider, He has the rights to say where it should go. Now, clearly this principle remains unchanged. When we get a good pay or an investment of ours does well, when our centelic money is deposited in our account. Ultimately, it is because God has blessed us. But his blessings are not just financial. He blesses us with art ability or experience with looking after kids, with time to pray or skills in fixing computers. And whenever and however God blesses us, it is not just for us. Blessing is not designed to stop with us. God demands that it is shared. The world demands that we do all that we can for ourselves. But God says, no, everything that you receive is for you, but it's also for others. Now, I don't know how hard it was back then, but I think that being inefficient at work is probably a little bit more complicated than it was back then. Perhaps a modern way that we can both honour our boss and be inefficient is by giving our tax return away rather than spending it on ourselves. If you're a boss or you have extra roles at work, it might mean giving better conditions to someone than you would otherwise be able to negotiate. It might mean renegotiating your work hours so that you have time to go into the high schools and join those that are teaching there. I think this is part of the basis to sacrificially giving both financially and in our people resources to the church plant that we're talking about starting to do down south. We cannot think only of ourselves. Our blessing is from God and he wants us to share it with others. And while we might naturally focus on what we have to give up, Wasn't Jesus right when he said that it's more blessed to give than to receive? At my home group, one of the guys shared about some people at his church that he was a part of before he moved to Wollongong. There was a number of guys who loved cars and they loved fixing up cars. And so they started to buy cars and do them up to give them away to people or sell them really cheaply. One day a driver crashed into their pastor. And while the pastor was insured, the other man who was at fault wasn't insured at all. And so at the scene of a crash, which would normally trigger sadness and possibly anger, the pastor was able to provide a replacement car on the spot. Just made the call and he gave the car to the man who had crashed into him. What an incredible witness to the love of Jesus. We can do things that we enjoy doing. It doesn't have to be all sacrifice and sadness. There can be a joy in giving out of the good things God's given to us. And so Deuteronomy says to us, look after the disadvantaged by pursuing justice for all, by being intentionally inefficient. And then thirdly, Israel is expected to look after the disadvantaged by being generous to the poor. I think that this last one probably sums up the attitude that generates the previous two actions. Now, if you were in home group this week, then you will have looked in some detail at Deuteronomy chapter 15. One of the most extraordinary requirements that God demanded of his people as they went into the promised land was that every seven years they were to forgive the debts of their fellow Israelites. No exceptions, no excuses whether they had given the loan six days ago or six years ago, they were supposed to wipe the slate clean. Good system, eh? A regular reset ensured that the rich didn't keep on getting richer and the poor poorer. I think this is like playing Monopoly. But no matter how good or or bad a run you're having that day, seven laps around the board and everyone's debts are forgiven what would be the aim of playing Monopoly if it wasn't to have more than your neighbour? Which probably should make us wonder if Monopoly or Deuteronomy has more influence in the life decisions that we make. Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, argues that poverty is the result of a combination of factors. Some are born on the wrong side of the divide and are perpetually disadvantaged. Some make bad choices. Some are victims of circumstance. Often, it will be a mixture of all three. But God designed life in the promised land to prevent people from getting stuck in a rut, regardless of the cause of their poverty. God's command is not to analyse the origin of people's poverty and inform them so they can work their way out of it, nor is it to determine which ones are worthy of our help. The universal requirement is for God's people to be generous. And if I'm honest, my natural response is to disobey. Now, I personally prefer to think about it as being wise. When the shabbily dressed person outside Woolies up there asks me for money again, I'm pretty confident that they will use it on cigarettes and alcohol. And so I conclude that it's good for me not to facilitate their bad habits. But Deuteronomy chapter 15 warns me that when I act this way, maybe I'm actually just being hard hearted and tight fisted. Verse 9 of chapter 15 alerts me that my thinking may in fact be sin. In that same book that I refer to, Keller tells the story of a neighbour of their church that their church decided to help out financially. As a single mother with a number of kids, and she blew the generous gift, financial gift that the church gave her on fast food and new bikes for her kids, rather than paying off any of the debts that the money was intended for. Now, when the deacons found out what she had done, some saw it as wasteful and were absolutely furious. How dare she use God's money on such frivolous things? Others recognised that the motivation behind this was that she was just trying, trying to give her kids what all the other kids in town had. She didn't want them to be different to everyone else. And so rather than rejecting her as hopeless, the deacons decided to work out further ways that they could help her, including getting people to tutor her kids and then helping her to get further training so she could get a better job. Throwing money at the disadvantaged won't solve all of their issues. Genuine help will require time and effort and creativity and patience and putting up with mistakes. It will often demand establishing relationships with these people who we might not normally have relationships with. It will be hard work. And God says, do it. Not once you're wealthy and have plenty to spare, not when you've got lots of leftover time. Be generous wherever you are with whatever you have already been blessed with. God's people were to give generously, recognising two truths that would always remain in tension. Chapter 15, verse 4 and 11 are part of one speech of Moses, and he says both of these things at the same time. Verse 4, There need be no poor among you, because the Lord will richly bless you. There needs to be no poor. And it's opposite in verse 11. There will always be poor people in the land. So which one is right? Will there be poor people, or won't there? Well, throughout the Old Testament, the promised land is frequently referred to as the land flowing with milk and honey. It's picture language to say that God was going to provide with so much that there would always be an overabundance. And one of the best ways for them to recognize that God had blessed them so generously was to pass it on to those who didn't have. Needy people are not a problem to fix, but they provide us with an opportunity to pass on what God has so graciously put under our stewardship. And so as Israel lived out this command, there would be no poor. Israel would have made sacrifices, genuine sacrifices, taking money that could have been theirs and giving it to somebody else that would genuinely help poor people out of their difficult circumstances, change their life situation. But the Bible is not Pollyanna-like, seeing only the bright side of life. Even when Israel did this, when they obeyed, they wouldn't eradicate poverty. After helping some people, others would also find themselves in need of help. And then the blessed were to be generous all over again. While we as Westerners aim for independence, Israel was designed to be forever interdependent on one another. That was God's goal for them. So what are we as Christians living in Wollongong to do with all of this? Well, as has hopefully been made clear over the last few weeks, this is firstly the standards that God gave Israel for living in the Promised Land. Their obedience or disobedience of these requirements had genuine consequences in real people's lives. The well-known story of Ruth is perhaps the best example of an Israelite putting into practice these commands, caring for a poor, foreign widow and her mother-in-law. Boaz was a righteous man, seen in how he treated Ruth, who who would otherwise have almost certainly been mistreated. And I think that part of the message of that story is that what starts as sacrifice and elaborate generosity actually comes back to bless the giver with far more than he ever gave away. Obedience in the form of sharing his blessing was blessed by God even more. Now, some people take that, well, okay, if I'm going to bless people, then God's going to bless me more, so that's why I'm going to do it. If the motivation's mixed up, you're not guaranteed that God's going to come and scratch your back, I assure you. But the opposite, greed, and perhaps that's why it doesn't work, is if we're on about blessing so that we'll get more blessed, then really at heart, we're greedy people. And greed was condemned by God. I think one of the strongest judgments that was ever spoken by a prophet against Israel is in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. I think it's a pretty good description of wealth creation in 21st century Australia, isn't it? Just like many do today, God's people climbed over one another in an attempt to get to the top, and it resulted in everyone getting kicked out of the place of blessing. Being generous to the poor was not an aspiration. It was the law. Now, these principles still remain true. And yet, whenever we read the Old Testament, we need to recognise that expectations like this are not simply instructions to follow. They are signposts pointing us to what Jesus would do. God knew from the beginning, even before he gave these commands through Moses, that Israel would fail to keep these requirements, and he always intended that Jesus would be the one who would perfectly provide for the poor and the mistreated. Very famously, Jesus' first sermon picked up on this very theme, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus commences by reading from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then after reading from this passage, and sitting down as the rabbis of that time did, Jesus states in verse 21, he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus at that moment, and many others later on, preached good news to the poor, which given that there were financially wealthy people there, shows that poverty is much more than an issue of just the number in our bank account. It is certainly not ever less than financial and social disadvantage, but it is also more importantly about our relationship with God that has been damaged by sin. To be poor is to be out of relationship with God. And so when Jesus proclaims good news to the poor, it is not that there's a free supply of money at 330 Kira Street, Wollongong. Rather, he proclaims that the King of glory has become poor so that we might become rich. But while Jesus has met all of the requirements for caring for the disadvantaged, as they're told to us in Deuteronomy, that doesn't mean we're off the hook. The consequences is that those saved by Jesus, those who've put their trust in Jesus as their saviour, need to treat others in need in the same way that Jesus treated them. We're not absolved from helping the poor because we give money at church or because we pay taxes and and our government uses that to look after those in need. Again, to quote from Tim Keller's book, he's commenting on James chapter 2 and says, he, James, is saying that a life poured out in deeds of service to the poor is the inevitable sign of any real, true justifying gospel faith. Grace makes you just. If you are not just, you've not truly been justified by faith. Ouch. If Tim Keller is right, this means that if we aren't actively helping the poor, our claim to be saved is questionable. Really? Really? Tim Keller, the man who's always on about grace, is saying that we have to be involved in helping out the poor. Now, I don't normally encourage you to go and buy a book after the sermon, but if you are up for a challenge, then I encourage you to get a copy of Generous Justice and read it prayerfully. You probably won't agree with everything that he says, but nor will you read it and remain unchallenged. I encourage you to grab a copy. But I think even if you don't, that one of the best ways to approach this theme is to ask, why is it that we aren't keen? Why don't we want to share God's blessings with those in need? And I think that there are a whole range of possibilities. Maybe we don't really believe that all we have is a blessing from God. Hashtag bless doesn't appear in our feed because we've done all the hard work we've sacrificed, we've saved, and so everything that I have is what I've earned. It's mine. Rather than managers of God's wealth, we think that our wealth is ours to do with as we determine. Or perhaps you don't think that you are amongst the blessed. You look around and and see others that have so much more than you have. It's easy to think that we'll start being generous when we've got a little bit further ahead when God has poured out his blessings on me too. But if you are not generous when you're a poor student, it's very unlikely that you will be when you're a successful business person. If you are not generous now, you never will be. So start whatever circumstances you find yourself in. Maybe for you, it's the needs and opportunities that are just too overwhelming. Just this week, in one week, while I was writing the sermon, the sheer number of requests for financial support could have caused donor fatigue for me. There was just so many things coming in, asking for money, asking for help. Does Deuteronomy mean that I have to give in response to every single request? We are left here with so many practical questions. Should I prioritise my giving at church or perhaps to missionaries? Do I need to be giving only to gospel-focused causes? Or should I also help the poor people that I meet on the street? How do I choose how to allocate my limited resources? Where does giving blood and sharing the fruit that I grow in my backyard fit into all of this? Well, I don't think that Deuteronomy answers all of these questions but it does put us all on a road going a particular direction. And so we can ask ourselves the three questions. Are we pursuing justice? Do we care at all about what is taking place in Myanmar? Maybe you can be ones that are continuing to put into place that command that we looked at a few months ago, to be praying that God would bring justice to this land. Do we care that kids have been and continue to be abused. If we see a problem and avert our gaze, if we don't get involved in helping, then we need to be checking our hearts. Are we intentionally inefficient? Not in the sense of being lazy or cutting corners. Do we maximize what we can get from our skills and opportunities, always thinking about ourselves and what we can get? Or are we those who pass on the blessings that we've received to others? Are we generous people? Do people see us as those who give to others with soft hearts and open hands in recognition of all that we have is a gift given to us by our generous God? If we choose to walk in the right direction, I have no doubt that we are going to go against the flow of our society. People may even think that you are aliens as well. So strangely, are you behaving? Wouldn't it be a wonderful response to God's grace in our lives? Let's pray. Generous God, we thank you so much that though we are undeserving, you have given us absolutely everything we need. That includes our physical provisions, our families, our homes, but it also includes Jesus, who is the provision for what we had done that separated us from you. We thank you so much that we are blessed people and we pray that you would forgive us for the times when we've had hard hearts and closed hands, tight fists, because we're selfish. Please forgive us, for not choosing to pass on the blessings that you've given to us. Please enable us to understand your grace even more clearly so that we would become increasingly generous people to your glory and honour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.